Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name's David. I'm a member here at REC, and uh, it's good to be sharing with you this afternoon. If you've got a Bible handy, um, can you open it up again, please, to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. And we'll have a look at this fantastic passage. So let me pray for us as we turn that up, please. Father God, we thank you so much for the promise you have made to us that we have an eternal home prepared for us with you, with our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit, and with all the saints gathered together. And as we study this passage now, we pray that your Spirit will encourage us, thrill us, and just help us, Lord, to drink in the promises that you have made for us, and to take them into our hearts and rest upon them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I guess under normal circumstances, if there are such things anymore, um, many of us would be planning holidays at this time. Um, Christmas is over and done with. Uh, we've uh, done all that. And now we think ahead and we think perhaps of a holiday. I guess that's uh, gone by the board now because we don't know what's going to happen. Um, but I think probably most of us, or many of us anyway, have uh, had a special holiday in mind at some point. Maybe we, we've already done that. We've, we've planned a holiday. Uh, we've thought about it. Um, the, the, the ideal destination of where we want to go to. Uh, and we've done all the planning. The day comes. We've done the packing. Uh, and then we, we, we go and we land there. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's just what we expected. The scenery is great. Uh, everything that we hoped for is there. And we really enjoy our time on holiday. Until we get about halfway through, and there's a bit of a niggle begins to, begins to happen in, in the back of our minds. We begin to think about home, until it gets to about a day or two before we're due to go home, and then, really, we can't wait to get home. It's really just long to be home once again. Maybe we've not been in that fortunate situation. Maybe we've never had a real home to call our own. Maybe we're waiting for that home. Perhaps we're a young person, itching to get away. And, and get our own place. Or a young couple setting up home for the first time, again, wanting our own place. Maybe we've lost our home, and because of that we're, we're down in the dumps, and uh, it's a difficult situation. But whatever situation we're in, I guess most of us at some stage have had that feeling that we're not really there, that there's another home that we want to be in. We've not quite got it all right. We want somewhere that truly fits, where nothing jars, where nothing breaks down, where we don't have to replace anything. Why do we have that feeling in us that we're not really there yet? Well, the truth is because that's true. We are not really there yet. God, our Father, has created us, and he's created us for a specific purpose. And it is to live in his presence, in his home, being ruled by his son, together with his family. That's what he's created the human race for. And those of us that have given our lives to Jesus, those that know him, have that yearning within us to be in that place with our Lord and with our brothers and sisters. And even if we haven't come to know Jesus yet, there is still that feeling within us that there is more to come that there is something better for us. 
Today we've come to the last in our, in our little series of thinking about home. We thought about Christmas and about how Jesus came to our home. Um, and now we're going to think today about the home that God has prepared for us. For those who trust in God's Son, the Lord Jesus, for those who know him and follow him, there is a home that God has prepared for us. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Where I am going, you may come also. And it's that place, that home, that house that we're thinking about today that's been, that, that God described uh, to John uh, in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. When we begin to read this description in Revelation, uh, we can become overawed by the majesty of it all. The descriptions of the city, uh, the shining uh, gates, the gold, the jewels, the glory... It all sounds quite fantastic, quite overwhelming. Maybe like Charles Wesley, we just get uh, lost in wonder, love and praise. But it only takes a cursory look at at this chapter and the next one, which we're not actually going to look at today, to see that there is a wealth of detail here. And we gloss over this detail at at our loss, really, because it's there for a reason. It's there to encourage us. It's there to to urge us on, to keep trusting, to keep walking, even through difficult times, to keep going forward towards this home. It's there to warn us, to warn us of the consequences of not following Jesus, that we won't be in this home, we'll be somewhere else. And the thing about homes is that we know the detail. The detail is important. We know the detail, every detail, of our own homes. We know where the tea is. We know how to get hot water. We know where the most comfy chair is. We know where the drafts come come in and you need to block them off. We know the details of our homes and that's what makes them comfortable. So we're going to look at some of the details of this heavenly home now and see how they are important and what they say to us. And we're going to look at it in four sections. And the first section, in the first five verses, we discover that it's going to be a new home. In verse five, God speaks, and he speaks from the throne, and he says, I am making everything new. It's going to be a brand spanking new home. And from that point of newness onwards, nothing is going to wear out. Nothing is going to break down. But what in particular is going to be different about this new home than the homes or our home we already have here on earth? Well, the first thing that John sees is that God is going to be there amongst us, amongst his people in this new home. And that's new. God is going to be there in a very different way. Yes, he's with us now by his Holy Spirit, but he's going to be there in a very more, uh, much more personal and close way from what we understand from this chapter. Uh, right at the beginning of this series of home, we saw how um, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden uh, disobeyed God. Um, they uh, rejected his command and they hid from him because they couldn't face him. Their relationship with God was broken, was fractured, and eventually they were expelled from the garden. But here we have this relationship fully restored. God is there amongst his people. 
ever since Adam and Eve uh, made that, that, that choice to disobey God, the human race has been in that, that state of, of dissonance, of fracture between, between us and God. We cannot exist in the presence of the glory of God in our sinful state without being consumed. But God has a plan, a plan to restore us to that position of being in a close and loving relationship with him. I cannot imagine what it's going to be like to be close to God. But God promises us that that will happen and it will be truly wonderful and amazing. And the fact that God is coming to this new home is an amazing thing as well. It's a demonstration of his great grace. We don't have to strive to get to God's home. We don't have to work hard or achieve all sorts of uh, different religious activities so that we can get into God's home. No, he's creating a new home for us and he is going to come into our home. Isn't that amazing? What his grace is, he will come to us and be with us in this new home which he's creating for us. And then as well as uh, God being with us, as if that wasn't enough, he promises us here that there'll be nothing to hinder that fellowship that we will have with, with God. Now verse 1, if you look at it, says that there will, be, there will no longer be any sea. Now that's a strange little detail, isn't it? Why, why is that picked out, that there'll no longer be any sea? And it seems to me a bit disappointing as well. I love the sea. It's fantastic, isn't it? We're an island race, and I guess most of us like to go to the seaside. I love being on rocky cliffs, watching the waves crash against the rocks, the sun sparkling off the wave crests. It's, it's inspiring. It's awesome. We were down in Pembrokeshire uh, when we were able to get away in the summer, and the coastline there is absolutely fantastic. Why is there no sea in this new heavenly kingdom? Well, the reason is that We're not talking here about beautiful scenery. We're talking about what the ancient people imagined the sea to be like. And for them, the sea was a dangerous place. It was a place of darkness, even of evil. It was a place of chaos, something that couldn't be controlled, where they saw that evil was. You only have to think of some Bible references to think of this. Think of uh, Noah. God flooded the earth with the, with the oceans to purge it of evil, to purge the sin out of it. And he saved Noah and his family out of the sea. Jonah, when he knew he disobeyed God, asked to be thrown into the sea because he felt that was where he ought to be, separated from God. Jesus calmed the storm to demonstrate his power over the forces of evil and chaos. And when he cast out a legion of demons, he sent them packing into the sea. So you see, for the ancient people, the sea was a place where there was separation from God. It was a barrier between human beings and God. And so now, in our new home, God says there'll be no more sea, no more separation, nothing to hinder us from the presence and the relationship of God. It will be perfect, a wonderful, perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father. No hidden dangers, no lurking evil. How wonderful, never to have to look over your shoulder to see what's coming up behind you. Nothing to fear, nothing to separate us from the love of God. So that's the significance then of the lack of sea. 
And then as well, in our new home, all the results, the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin will be dealt with, will be banished. In the next chapter, we're told there'll be no more curse, which is the final um, result of Adam's sin. But here it tells us there'll be no more pain, no sickness, no death. In fact, it'll be even better than that. It tells us that there won't be just the mere absence of these things, but that God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. How amazing is that? You might ask, well, why would he need to do that? Surely when we're transported to heaven, all our pain and sickness will fall away. We'll have nothing else uh, to worry about, nothing like that. But you see, we'll still be the same people when we get to heaven. We're not going to be turned into some ethereal spirits. We will still be the people we are now. God has created us as individuals. He knows us and he will, he will keep us as, as we are. And home is surely made up of memories as well. Memories of our lives are built into our homes. And for some of us, those memories may be very painful and difficult. When Jesus rose from, de- from, from death, he received uh, his new body, and it's the same sort of body that we will receive, so we understand. But he still bore the, the marks of the nails in his hands. He still bore the scar of the sword in his, of the spear in his side. We will still be the people we are. So when we get to heaven, the shadow of our earthly pain will not automatically disappear. But God, our loving Heavenly Father, will transform all our past hurts into uh, his wonderful promises, his wonderful um, presence for us. So like a tender mother, he will soothe away, wipe away each hurt, each painful memory, each, um, each sickness, everything that uh, hangs about us that we want to get rid of that we're ashamed of, God will wipe it all away. Does it seem like wishful thinking to have a world of no pain, no suffering, no death? Is it pie in the sky? Is it what uh, uh, others outside might say, or you Christians, you've got this fantastic idea that that they're going to be somewhere where there's no pain. It's just too amazing. It's just too fantastic for words. But the thing is that Jesus has shown us that it's possible When Jesus came to the earth, the first thing that he said, that he announced, was that the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven has come to you. And what he did to show that was to heal sicknesses, to drive out demons, to raise the dead. He proved that in his kingdom, these things can be dealt with, can be got rid of. And he finally proved, once and for all, by his resurrection from the dead, that he would defeat all these things, including death itself. A pain-free world is possible because of Jesus. He began it and he will complete it in this new home that he's preparing for us. When I was a boy, I remember going out to play in the fields behind our house. There were fields when I was a boy there. As I grew up, it became a housing estate, (laughs) but the fields were there when I was younger. And uh, we used to go and play um, in the the grass around the fields. And I remember um, in that uh, long grass, somehow, I don't know what was in the grass, but I lifted my hand up 
and it was pouring with blood. I had a severe cut across my hand. I don't know how it happened. Um, But all I could think of doing was running home as quickly as I could to my mother, uh, which I did, and uh, she soothed it away, swabbed it, bandaged it up, sat me on her knee, and uh, with gentle words, just soothed the pain away. Um, And I remember that even to this day. But in a far more wonderful way, God himself, our Heavenly Father, will soothe away every hurt, every pain, each disappointment, all failure, everything that we want to see gone out of our lives will go under God's tender and loving hand. And they will never come back. They will be gone forever. So our new home then will be brand new. And the second thing about it is that it's going to be a clean home. Verses 6 to 8 describe the people who will and will not be in this new heavenly home. And it begins with the words of God speaking from the throne, It is done. It is done. And doesn't that remind us of the words of Jesus from the cross when he called out, It is finished. It is finished. The way into this home then is through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. God says here that there will be two types of people who inherit the heavenly home. Actually, they're the same people, um, just two descriptions of them. The thirsty and the overcomers or the victorious. Jesus said, uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And to the woman at the well, he said, He who drinks of this water will never thirst. That water will spring up to eternal life. True thirst for God and his righteousness will always be satisfied and can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. We can only come into this kingdom if we're thirsty for Jesus, thirsty for his righteousness, thirsty to receive all that he has for us. And the second group are the overcomers, the victorious. And earlier in the book of Revelation, uh, we're told that the the ones who overcome, the victorious, overcome by the blood of the Lamb and their testimony to the Lord Jesus. Again, it's those who are trusting in Jesus, in his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And our testimony, our word that he is, the king he is lord jesus is lord that's what defines us as christians our trust in jesus and our declaration of him as lord if our new home is to be clean and pure then we too must be clean and pure we must have had our sins washed away by coming to jesus confessing our sin and trusting him for forgiveness there is no other way Sadly, there are others mentioned in these few verses, those who cannot enter into this new home. Two things characterise them, according to these verses. They are cowardly and unbelieving. Cowardly because they are afraid to recognise their own sin. They will not admit that they need a saviour. And unbelieving because they will not come to Jesus and believe that he is the way their sins can be forgiven. And out of these two mindsets, cowardice and unbelief, 
overcome all the horrors of verse 8, all the things that will ban people, bar people from this clean and pure home. This is a warning to us all, but it's a warning especially to those who have put off receiving Jesus as Saviour, those who are wavering about trusting him, those who flatly refuse to accept that he is the Son of God who died for the forgiveness of our sins. Please, if that's you, take note of these verses. They're not here just to frighten us. They're here to encourage us to come to Jesus, to receive the free offer of eternal life, the gift of his grace. Trust in him now. Put your faith in him today and open the door to this new life which he is offering. The alternative is too horrible to, dis- to contemplate, really. John-, John calls it here the second death, and he describes it as being a fiery lake of burning sulphur. It is eternal separation from God. But the good news is that no one has to undergo that. The way out is through faith and trust in Jesus. Anyone, anyone can repent at any time and come to Jesus and trust him for salvation. And then thirdly, our home will be a magnificent home. A magnificent home. The description of the heavenly Jerusalem in verses 9 to 21 contains a myriad of details. We could spend all day and all night uh, examining every one of these details and drawing something out of them. But I just want to pick out one or two um, points um, about them. And first of all, we're, giving some, we're given here some dimensions of the, of the holy city. Now, some Bible translations um, transfer these, these dimensions into um, modern units. They give, us, give, give them in metres or, or yards or miles. Well, that's all very well, and we'll mention that in a moment. And it may help us to, to, to get an idea of the size of the grandeur of the heavenly city. But if you do that, you lose the significance of the numbers themselves. And right through Revelation, there are numbers all the way through, different numbers. And they have specific significance and meaning. And they're not just there to to, to tot up and and see what the, the result is. They're there to tell us something. So we're told in verse 16 that the holy city, Jerusalem, which represents the people of God, is a cube. And it is 12,000 stadia, long, wide and hide. Now if we do convert that into modern um, units, it's about 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles. Get your head around that, please. That's the size of Western Europe, from, from here to the border of Turkey, and from the Arctic Circle down to um, probably the, the, the Mediterranean. And not only is it square like that, but it's 1,500 miles high as well. Uh, which goes out beyond the atmosphere. Pretty big. But the significance is not so much in the size as in the numbers. And of course, 12,000 is 12 times 1,000. And 12 is the number in Revelation of the completed people of God. We saw just um, previously, or or, um, uh, Wendy read for us, verses 12 and 14, where... The, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel are mentioned, that's the Old Testament people of God, and the 12 apostles are mentioned, who represent the New Testament people of God. And so 12 is, is 
the number for the completed people of God. But it's not 12, it's 12 times a thousand. And for, for ancient people, a thousand was just a, a very big number, a huge number. So the city then is 12 times a thousand, very big. In other words, it's big enough, because 12 is the number of the people of God, it's big enough to contain all the people of God in every age. There's space for everyone in this city, everyone who repents and comes to God in faith. There's room for you and me and all of God's people in this great city. Then the second measurement we we find is the city wall is 144 cubits thick. Now again, if we translate that into modern units, it's it's about 200 feet. I don't know if you've ever walked around the city walls of York, but they're about six feet wide. You You can walk across the top of them, about six feet. 200 feet is enormous for a city wall. But of course, it's not 200 that's the key thing. It's 144, 144 cubits. Mathematicians, please, I'm not a mathematician. My wife will tell you I'm hopeless with numbers. But mathematicians will tell you that 144 is 12 times 12. Again, we're back to the people of God. It's it's the completed people of God, 12 times 12. But there's an interesting little detail in this measurement. The original uh, Greek does not actually say that it's, that it's 144 cubits thick. It just says the wall is 144 cubits, full stop. So it could be thick or it could be high. It's just that size, that bulk. And it tells us how it was measured. It was measured by an angel, but using a man's measurement. Now what does that mean? A cubit, which we're talking about here, was the distance from the elbow to the fingertips of a man. Now, of course, if you were measuring something in cubits, it would depend on who you were, whether you had long arms or short arms. Uh, And that's how it was done, which is why perhaps sometimes walls didn't meet. A bit like our foot. Our foot, of course, was originally a a footprint, a pace, um, but it was standardised in the end, and the cubit too was standardised after a while. But here we're told that the angel is using a cubit, but it's not the standard cubit, it's a man's cubit. In other words, he's going back to measuring it by hand. But it's not a man's hand, it's an angel's hand. So this wall is, 104, uh, is uh, 144 angel arm lengths, thick or wide or high. It's huge. And to cap it all, 200 feet... 144 cubits is just enormous. It's a ridiculous width for a city wall. Um, but, it's, but, but to support a wall 1,500 feet high, uh, 200 feet wouldn't do it, so the architects tell me. You'd need something even bigger than that. What can we say about all this? Well, here we have a, a city so big that we cannot really imagine its size. It would have been far bigger than anything John, who wrote this down, could have imagined. He probably knew at least two cities. He knew Jerusalem, obviously. We believe he knew Ephesus. We believe he was based in Ephesus. So he would have known those two cities. But they would have been minuscule in, in, uh, in comparison with this great city of God. And it's surrounded, this great city is surrounded by a wall, 144 angel arms, thick or high. 
It's a city with a wall that will encompass all of God's people and strong enough to protect them from any danger. Indeed, when the prophet Isaiah foresaw uh, the city of God, he called the walls salvation. He said, your walls will be called salvation. To be behind uh, this wall of salvation is the safest place anybody could ever be. You couldn't get safer than behind this wall which God is building for us. The wall of salvation, measured by an angel, will encompass all the people of God in perfect safety. And I want to ask of you, if you're there, if that's where you are, behind the salvation walls, protected by the salvation which Jesus Christ has won for us. That's where we need to be. That's where we should be. Just one other detail I want to mention. There is a list of precious stones here which are said to be in the walls. Twelve of them, you will notice, if you counted them, twelve precious stones, that number again. And they remind us of the stones that were sewn into the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. And he wore these stones, twelve stones, on his, on his breastplate to remind him and the people uh, that he was carrying the people of Israel, the twelve tribes, with him into the Holy of Holies when he went to offer sacrifice for their sins. It was a reminder that he was their representative. He went in uh, bearing their sin and to offer before God the sacrifice and have their sins forgiven. And each tribe was represented by a precious stone. But this list is different from the list that we find described in Exodus chapter 28, which describes these, uh, the, the priestly garments. It's not the same list, and some of the stones are different. Why would that be, do we think? Why would it be different when that's the image that's coming across? Well, I'm no expert, um, but people who, who are more expert than I um, tell us that actually this list appears to be a list of stones which represented the signs of a zodiac. But it's in reverse order to what is normally given. So it's a backwards order of the signs of the zodiac, if you like. What does that tell us? It tells us that the stones here that the city is founded on are the, they're founded on the, the sacrifice that is offered for our sins and, they are, and that is the only foundation that is available for them. In other words, we cannot enter this city trusting in anything else but the sacrifice offered for us by Jesus. We can't trust in any other philosophy, any other superstition, any other religion. This uh, astrology, this, this, this zodiac, was rife in that time. It was People were, were believing it, were following it. In fact, it, there's a fair... Um, belief that the, the Magi that came from the East to worship Jesus were in fact astrologers. They were looking at the stars, looking at the signs of the zodiac, because that was the belief at the time. But here we're told that these precious stones are in the wrong order. In other words, that is out. Nothing to do with the zodiac at all. It's to do with Jesus bearing our sin, like the priest bore the sins of the people into the temple. And that is the only foundation that this city has. No other philosophy or religion can save us. Only the saving grace of Jesus offered as a sacrifice for us. Our new home then is magnificent. 
It's big, it's strong, it's founded on the salvation won by Christ. Its gates are pearls, the pearl of great price, which is the gospel. The city is made of gold, it's pure and precious, but it's transparent, we read. There's nothing to hide, no shame, it's pure. What a wonderful place it is. One last thing about it. It's a city of glory, a glorious home. The last few verses, verses 22 to 27, tell us of two types of glory in the city. Firstly, the city is lit by the glory of God. It doesn't need the sun, doesn't need the moon, doesn't need lights, street lights, arc lights, spotlights, candles, doesn't need anything like that. God's glory is sufficient to light this city. There's an old spiritual song which goes, I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. Uh, But that's true, isn't it? That's what this verse is telling us. These verses are telling us. However we imagine heaven to be, and people have fantastic ideas, usually it's it's their perfect picture of life on earth. It's, It's forest glades, tumbling waterfalls, beautiful fields, whatever it might be, flower, fields of flowers. However we imagine, there's nothing that can compare with the presence of the glory of God. When we come to this city, our eyes won't be on the architecture, our eyes won't be on the beauty, won't be on things around us. They will be riveted on the glory of God because that's the the centre of it all. That's what will be there. That's what will catch our attention. The overawing presence of the glory of God. But then secondly, it says the glory of the nations will be brought into the city. Earlier in Revelation, we read that in the New Jerusalem, there would be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people under heaven. Now, our human cities are a mix of people from all nations. Um, They become more and more cosmopolitan as life goes on. And that can be very enriching. It can be very exciting. But it can also cause tensions, sometimes even violence between peoples. Here in God's new city, there will be harmony and peace and the best of every nation will be brought into this city. People from every tribe, tongue and nation. I remember some years ago, um, uh, we went to Sheffield Cathedral and we heard uh, an African choir singing, a choir from, gathered from some churches in Africa, had come over and done a, did a, a concert. And it was thrilling. They were so vibrant with their worship, their songs. They got us all to join in, even got us up dancing in the cathedral. Uh, it was amazing. So I, I want to uh, book into um, an extended uh, holiday or extended um, visit while, when I get to heaven, please, to the African quarter. I'd like to go there for perhaps about a couple of thousand years, maybe, and join in with their worship because it is so thrilling and exciting. But I guess we'll all be mixed up anyway. There won't be different courses. So uh, we'll all share and join in our worship together. But we will share in the glory of uh, what God has given us uh, in, in this life and share it together in a new fantastic way in our new home. So let me ask you then, are you ready for this new home which God has got prepared for us? Are you longing to get there? Are you just waiting for the time when you're going to be there in that presence? 
Let's finish then with verse 27 at the end of the chapter. It tells us that there's a book, and it's the Lamb's book of life, Jesus' book of life. And in that book are written the names of everybody who will have access to this new home. Everybody who's got the, the calling card, if you like, who can come up to this home and be welcomed in. It's the book that Jesus keeps of all who have put their faith and trust in him, all who have received God's gift of salvation, all who know the Lord as their saviour. Have you? Do you know Jesus as your saviour today? Have you put your trust in him? Or will you be one of those who hear those terrible words that Jesus uh, said maybe will be heard one day to some? Go away from me, I never knew you. Just ponder on that today as we come to uh, thinking about, as we've been thinking about Jesus coming as, as a baby. Just think about him as saviour. Have you put your trust in him? Have you taken him? Have you repented of your sin? Received his forgiveness? Owned him as Lord? And are you looking forward to going to his home? And for us who do know Jesus, for us who have put our trust in him, what a home to look forward to. Not sitting around on clouds playing harps, not uh, floating around in the sky as disembodied spirits, but real people in a real place with a real God in our, in our midst, sharing together in glory, knowing one another, knowing God and him knowing us, bathed in his love, soothed by his care, worshipping Jesus, giving God glory and sharing in the glory of one another as glorified people of God. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you are too. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, uh, this picture that we've given, that you've given us, sometimes it's uh, hard for us to imagine. Uh, we are so bound up on this earth, we, we live our lives here, we, we do not know anything else, really. But you have given us this glimpse into glory, you have shown us something of what it will be like and we thank you for that and we pray that you will give us uh, the desire to be there, that you'll help us to trust Jesus if we haven't done so, to keep trusting him if we have and to know that this place has been prepared for us because you love us and have given your life for us. So we thank you so much and pray that you'll keep us until the day that we are there with you in glory. Amen.